This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. Welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average. On the show this week, we've got Dr. David Gold. David, if you just want to come in and introduce yourself. Yes, hi. Um, my name is Dr. David Gold. I am obviously from my accent. I am American and Bostonian. Uh, but for the past 35 years, I've lived in Switzerland. And I've worked in many parts of the world as in occupation, safety, and health, um, as you'll hear from me in a few minutes. Thanks, David. So, I don't know if you've seen the format of the podcast, we'd like to just go right back to the start, if you want to tell us just a bit about your background, where you grew up, your early life. Sure. Um, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, I was born in Boston, in the northeastern part of the United States. I was brought up in a small fishing town, uh, which is 11 miles northeast of Boston, and spent most of my early childhood in and around or on a bicycle exploring different parts of the, the coast uh, around where I live. Um, basically, the town of Swampscott, Massachusetts, it's an Indian name, um, and there's a lot of, lot of history, a lot of very, very rich history um, in that area uh, in New England. And as I, as I grew up and as I went to, to school and, and went to university, um, my, my very first job, one of my very first jobs was um, basically working on fishing boats. Um, where I worked the, in the International Labor Office, one might say it was child labor at that point in time, but it was a passion for me to get onto the sea and to be able to harvest lobsters um, and to bring home lobsters also to, to my parents once in a while. Um, but I started to develop a healthy respect, even at a very early age, um, of finding of, of what happens uh, to a fisherman, what happens to a lobsterman. And also, um, since the age of 12, um, I have been a diver. And currently, I'm a paddy diving instructor. I'm a professional diver. And I have a, I have a diving remit in occupational safety and health, uh, being responsible for diving safety worldwide as part of the ILO. So basically, um, I went to university. And I also started to develop um, a certain love for emergency medicine. Um, and my summer jobs were basically um, as a beach lifeguard and eventually started to do mountain rescue. And while at university, I became a, a volunteer firefighter uh, yeah. and what was then an emergency paramedic, an emergency medical technician, um, as part of the, the university system, being in the university. It helped pay my tuition um, at the university and also gave me a little bit of excitement in life to understand where things were and understand to a certain extent at a, at a fairly young age, um, in my late teens, early 20s, um, the whole thing of trauma and life and death, responding to motor vehicle accidents and, and seeing where things were. Um, my university education um, brought me my, my initial to my, to my bachelor's degree, um, brought me to a, to a point uh, wanting to also learn foreign languages. Um, and I studied um, not only in the United States, but I also studied in France. 
picking up French language and, and French culture, and, and perhaps this gave me a thirst uh, to a certain extent to, to explore a little bit the world. Um, in my early 20s, I, I married the, my best friend, my partner, the love of my life. Uh, I met her um, when I was a lifeguard. Um, she's Swiss, I was American, I'm American, and, and um, we've been together 48 years. Uh, very much enjoy each other's company as uh, we've been very solidly together during this COVID situation. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's been a, a very interesting journey um, with her. When it was time to do my master's degree, I was then employed by the New Hampshire Department of Public Health. Mm -hmm. um, I was the emergency medical services and paramedic training coordinator for the state of New Hampshire, um, organizing training and education um, in emergency medicine um, for first responders, for emergency medical technicians, for paramedics. Um, and at that point in time, I spent a couple of years in New Hampshire, then I was headhunted to the state of Maine, um, where I became the paramedic services coordinator for the state of Maine. Uh, at the same time, I did a master's degree in occupational education because I was very much involved in teaching and organization of adult education. I set up a um, consultancy um, in the 1980s, and that consultancy basically was a response to a burning question that I had of why are, why are there so many accidents and what can we do to prevent these accidents? So I set up an organization in 1980 called Safety Education Associates, a small town called Biddeford, Maine, and had clients such as the National Fire Protection Association in the United States, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, large companies like Georgia Pacific, um, and a variety of other com companies um, that were interested in training and education in occupational safety and health and the challenge of raising awareness amongst workers so that workers would voluntarily uh, engage and, and work in a way of supporting occupational safety and health where I was a consultant would disappear and that safety and health would be the legacy that I would leave behind and it would be sustainable over a long period of time. In 1984, traveling to visit my wife's parents and bringing my, my two daughters to, to Europe, in Europe to Switzerland, um, I decided to visit an organization called the International Labor Office. And to make a long story short, I was um, invited in for a five minute spontaneous interview. Yep. An interview, the head of safety and health, um, who was supposed to only meet me for five minutes, we spent two hours together. He offered me a job. Yeah. I said, no, uh, I really don't want to work for the UN. I don't want to work for the International Labor Office. I, I, I am very happy where I am. Mm -hmm. He was clever. He said, would you consider coming for six months as a consultant? And I said, wow, this would be a great opportunity for my wife to be back in Europe, for my kids to get an understanding of um, our family culture and the culture in Switzerland. Again, to make a long story short, that six months parlayed into 23 years and working in over 40 countries around the world to try to strengthen um, occupational safety and health. Um, during my career at the International Labor Office, I had a number of different areas of responsibility. I worked in the area of construction safety. Mm -hmm. I worked in the area of diving safety. I worked in the area of fishing safety. I worked in the area of chemical safety, but also generically how to strengthen 
a safety and health representative, a trade union representative to be able to deal with safety and health issues. Yeah. And again, the underlying, or if you like, the underscoring philosophy for me was to try to work in a sustainable fashion so that I would come in as a safety and health professional, a United Nations official with diplomatic status, and work with people to the point where they were comfortable in being able to take it forward on their own. Then maybe come back and check and see how they were doing, but basically it was then their remit and no longer my remit. And basically it meant that over a long term, these countries, these trade unions, these employers organizations, they would have the ability at that point in time to go off on their own and deal with occupational safety and health in a professional way that, that contributed um, to the growth of the organizations they worked with and to helping people. Um, during that period of time also, um, I, I moved on a little bit um, and got to a point where I decided master's degree wasn't really enough. Um, I was in my late 40s and I decided I would do a PhD. And I approached a gentleman from the University of Tampere in Finland who was a professor mm -hmm. and suggested, yeah, I'd like to do a PhD with you. And, and he agreed. And again, as I did with my master's, as I did with my bachelor's, I worked full time. I supported myself. And I, at the same time, in parallel, I did my doctoral studies. The doctoral studies were very, very interesting. They were, they were the readings, the, the sort of things I needed to do to fulfill the requirements of the Tampere University of Technology in Finland. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there was a research component. Yep. And I was trying to decide what area of research I wanted to work in. And my, my friends, my colleagues, a, a, a colleague that I worked with, Yuka Takala, who uh, many of you that are listening to this blog may have heard of Yuka when he worked for the European Agency uh, for Safety and Health at Work as his director. Um, Yuka said to me, he gave me a very nice piece of advice. He said, Dave, I think what you need to do in doing your doctorate is follow your passion. Mm -hmm. Someone said to me, do chemical safety. And I said, well, that's not my passion. He said, well, what about, someone said, what about construction safety? I said, it's important. People are falling off of buildings. People are getting hurt. But that, no, that's not my passion. They said, well, what's your passion? I said, well, the sea. Mm -hmm. And not only the sea, but people that go to the sea, people that work in the sea, the fishermen. And I have a passion for diving. And then I heard, and at this point in time, I was posted um, in Thailand. I was in Thailand for five years, working in 23 different Asian countries, trying to strengthen safety and health. And I started to read about a group of people there were 400 of them, the indigenous fishermen divers of Thailand, yeah. diving with very, very primitive equipment mm -hmm. and were dying at a rate um, that was something greater than the construction workers falling off bamboo scaffolding in Thailand. The death rate was absolutely phenomenal. So on my own time, on my leave time with the UN when I was there, I designed a project I implemented a project on my own, mm -hmm. and I did a, my PhD thesis, my research piece, looking at the diving practices, looking at the mortality and the morbidity 
looking at education, looking at carbon monoxide in the breathing air of the divers, looking at in-water recompression um, that the divers had practiced and actually saved lives doing, which was not done in other parts of the world, looking at a variety of different elements with the indigenous fishermen divers, understanding their culture, learning their language, which was different than the Thai language, um, and working with them, working with the boat captains, working with a variety of other people to try to strengthen their concept of occupational safety and health. Yeah. I had the opportunity to empower at that point in time, uh, 16 healthcare workers to work with me, um, yeah. worked in a number of different villages um, to strengthen that. And I think one of the most gratifying moments professionally for me um, is seven years after my project finished, I went back to Rawai, which was one of the villages off Phuket. Mm -hmm. And I met the chief of the village. I had lost contact with him for a period of time. And he came up to me and he greeted me in a very, very reverent sort of Thai fashion. And he said to me, um, which didn't translate well in my ear, he said, it's all your fault. <laughs> he said, it's all my fault. He said, what do you mean? He said, it's all your fault that we have not had a death or a significant injury or a significant illness since your project. So what you did is you planted a seed that has now grown into a tree where people practice mm -hmm. safe diving. And every recommendation that you made, we've implemented and we're carrying it forward, which basically sustained my notion, my philosophy, my, my thinking, that even some of the most primitive people with four years of education can very, very much profit from the same sort of notion where if you empower them, if you give them the wherewithal to be able to do what they need to do um, in this kind of situation, they'll do well. Yeah. So in, um, I came back uh, from Asia in 1997. I also worked with small and medium-sized enterprises trying to strengthen their um, safety and health. Um, I was responsible at the ILO for organizing um, four or five major world congresses in occupational safety and health in different parts of the world in different languages, um, which was also quite enjoyable to collegially meet, pe collegially meet people from various parts of the world. When you're a diplomat working for the United Nations, you have a certain status, but at the same time, you're very much in safety and health, a human being working with other people. Um, I had the opportunity in my, I have a remit for dealing with safety and health and firefighting, mm -hmm. and health and emergency medicine while I was there as well. So I had a chance to work um, with firefighters, uh, with paramedics, with others, and with senior officers in a variety of different countries. We're yeah. speaking the same language, even if we couldn't speak you're speaking the language of safety and health. Um, in, my, in the latter part of my career at the International Labor Office, I was also asked if I would design an educational program that looked at the multiple negative synergistic effects of psychosocial issues. Mm -hmm. For example, it's the issue of uh, perhaps someone being uh, stressed and as a result of the stress, they might start drinking and that drinking may lead to violence and that Violence may lead to other addictions um, like smoking and the negative spiral that occurs when that happened. And I was able to design an educational program and implement or design, or I should say, 
bring instructors or train instructors in this area um, worldwide uh, to be able to teach this in their own countries, in their own languages, um, under the flag of the International Labour Office. That's absolutely fascinating, David. I don't know if you're familiar with the West Coast of Scotland effect and how that affected the population, specifically of the West Coast of Scotland. They were seen as the sick man of Europe at one time um, because of the stress, the alcohol that led on to the substance abuse and the thing about them not speaking up and not going to consult with a doctor when something was wrong with them. It was very much seen, especially around the kind of Glasgow area, you didn't go and speak to the doctor or you didn't seek help if you needed help. So I'm really interested in that. That's fascinating research. Okay, well, this was, this was a very interesting part of my career. It was, the, it, was, it was sort of, I won't say it was the swan song because there was nothing negative about it. Um, but it's, that, it's basically what I ended my, that part of the phase of my life, that part of my career internationally with the International Labor Office. Um, and that was living in Switzerland and I've been, I'm, talking to you today from Genolier, Switzerland, where, where I live and, and spend eight months of the year. Um, and basically when I left the ILO, um, at that point in time, I set up a consultancy. Um, and at that point in time, just when I was leaving the ILO, I heard about this institution, which has become very important to me, which is the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health. Yeah. IOSH. And I joined IOSH in leaving the ILO and, and currently I'm one of the vice presidents yeah. of the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health and formerly a member of council. And I feel that the institution is very important to me and, and the direction that it's going and the way it's helping safety and health professionals globally um, is extremely important. So in a sense, um, I have multiple, or I've had multiple clients. I'm trying to reduce my client list a little bit now as I'm getting older. Um, COVID has also uh, kind of helped me with that. Uh, it's kind of a, I guess you'd call it a comorbidity if you looked at the medical uh, terminology for it. But I've had a, a very interesting journey since leaving the Iowa approximately 12 years ago. Um, and I've worked with a number of multinational companies um, in various parts of the world, working in the area of travel, safety, health, and security, working in the area of chemical safety, and continuing some of the traditional lines um, that I've worked with in the past. Uh, fire safety is also something that has been very much part of my career, and it's something that I've always felt that it needs to be completely integrated into occupational safety and health. And as part of IOSH, I was part of the um, committee of the Fire Risk Management Group and became the chair for three years of the IOSH Fire Risk Management Group, trying to also share some of my philosophies, but also the philosophies of the members of the committee of the group. And the committee, the committee grew considerably during that period of time as we, as we tried to work through a number of different situations, including the Grenfell fire and others where we could help support um, the institution and work together. Um, I'm also a member of the Institute of Fire Engineers, the UK institution, um, again, trying to promote fire safety um, at the same time. So basically, now I am a consultant. I continue to be a consultant. I am a vice president of IOSH, as I mentioned before. Um, where do I see myself progressing in the future? Um, well, I'm writing, I'm teaching. I'm enjoying myself. Um, my wife 
feels very strongly that I shouldn't stop. And I feel that yeah, I should stop a little bit. I have a young grandchild and I want to know more about my young grandchild. And uh, we've been distant from Sebastian for a period of time because of COVID. Um, he's in the United States, we're in Europe. It's very difficult as well, isn't it, David? I had a new child um, just two weeks before the lockdown and all of the, my wife's mother wasn't able to come and visit after the after the lockdown was announced and we had loads of kind of issues with not having family close and we're quite a close knit family getting the getting the kids to be able to see their cousins and their friends and taking them out to do all their usual things. So it's a really difficult thing to be separated. There's always so much you can do over a video call. You can't give them a hug over a video call, for example. It's true and and, and but what's important is is my wife and I try to speak we try to speak every day with, with our grandson and, and our daughter and her husband. Um, we, we don't achieve that all the time. He has things he has to do, but when we do speak to him, it's quality time. Yeah. And we're just looking very much forward to the day when, when we can, uh, when I can get him in the water, when we can do some swimming. And, and um, also um, on a personal level, I'm an avid sailor. I've been sailing for as long as I can remember. Uh, yeah sailing last night on the Lake of Geneva. Uh, and when I'm in New England, I'm sailing uh, some ocean-going yachts, actually racing some ocean-going yachts. And uh, I have a very, as you can see from the ship behind me, I have a very, very strong affinity to the sea. That ship is the um, USS Constitution, which is still the, the, um, the um, flagship of the US First Naval District. Yeah. Um, very important uh, also in American history. So basically, that's where I am now. Uh, absolutely fascinating career, David. A real journey there. Um, lots of different facets that you've been involved in all across different industries, then working for the UN, developing safety and developing countries as well, really kind of trailblazing and pathfinding the way to try and help improve occupational safety and health all across the world. And it would probably neatly bring me on to my next question, which would be, what advice or guidance would you give to someone starting out in health and safety today? It's a very good question. And, and uh, I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about that a little bit. Um, because generally, when we look at people moving into a career in health and safety, um, it's either a primary career when they couple of there's, there's basically three avenues. One of them is they work their way up to a job and to another job and to another job. So they may start in a vocational sort of perspective, find themselves as an assistant and then find themselves in a health and safety position, yeah. um, which is one avenue. Another avenue is they go to university, or they go to school and they end up with a, a health and safety degree, uh, either a bachelor's or a master's. master's. Another avenue which is very interesting, and, and all three of them have their unique challenges, is, is that someone is coming in as a second career. Um, and I came into health and safety as a second career, um, being in emergency medicine and working my way uh, into health and safety, being tired of the carnage that I would see um, mm -hmm. when people were injured or unfortunately people were killed um, as a result of their work. And I think one of the things that one needs to think about is it's a very, very exciting job. It's a very dynamic job. It's not static. It's yeah. not something where, you know, you, you're going to get, it, you make it what you make it, what you make it. 
Okay, it's it's not something. If if you want to sit behind a desk, it's not the right job for you. If you want to interface with people, if you want to talk to people, if you want to get people excited about something, this is where you should be, and this is what you should be doing. And when we promote effectively health and safety, when we see, for example, that people are looking out for each other, are mm -hmm. not sitting back and ignoring the fact that someone is doing something wrong, but they're, they're saying to a colleague, a friend, a relative, listen, I, th I think it's really important that you think about doing this because there are consequences if you don't, but it, 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 it's good for all of us. It's good for the company. It's good for you. It's good for your family, most importantly. And we need to find ways of, of doing that. So I would suggest that for young people that they need to perhaps get an understanding, get a view of it. I think getting into some sort of shadowing program, even in the senior, the, in secondary school, um, be, before they go to university to see the type of career this can bring, um, to try to understand which direction they may want to go in. They may want to go into a research field. They may want to go into occupational hygiene. They may want to go into occupational medicine. They may want to go into safety and health engineering. There's a variety of different paths they can take. Um, yep. Administration is another. There are people that come into health and safety who are HR people mm -hmm. uh, and who have found themselves in the health and safety area. But I think it's, I think it's important that, that people have very much an open mind and they're, they're willing to learn, they're willing to grasp, they're willing to say, okay, I may not know too much about this now, but I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to take it on board and I'm willing to, to understand what needs to be done to do that. I think if people come into the profession and they think, okay, I'm gonna be a police officer, I'm gonna be the one that is going to be coming down with an iron hammer. Yeah. Um, we know from studies that were made by DuPont, mm -hmm. what was called, or what is called the DuPont-Bradley curve, um, that when it's purely enforcement, we see incidents, we see accidents, we see illness, um, we see fairly significant numbers, but when we're taking care of ourselves and we're taking care of each other, as I said a few minutes ago, um, those numbers come down and people start to look out for themselves. So we're st we establish, and this is one of the areas that I, I think um, is important to me now, mm -hmm. is we establish a safety and health culture in the organization which is rich in communication, which is rich in sharing, which is rich in not saying to someone they're doing something wrong, but to saying to someone, how can we make it better? How can we do better with everyone else? And, and to actually look at business models. You know, in, in business, they look at key performance indicators with um, leading and lagging indicators. And, and we need to talk the business language. We need to work through that business language in promoting a solid occupational safety and health culture and fire safety culture um, within an organization to make it work. Yeah, yeah. That's why I find the work that Eddie Woods on the podcast a few weeks ago. Eddie's now working on something that he's calling the safety community within organizations. That he's taking a community-based approach in the business to try and develop it through and get them thinking in that community mindset of taking care of each other, being a good citizen within the community, rather than being an us and them, the employer and the employee. So I'm really interested in that side of things. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, still, I still feel um, that 
as an institution, um, IOSH um, can also work in that direction. You know, and is, as, as IOSH, as a vice president of IOSH, we have an ambassadorial role, but mm -hmm. we, can, we can help as an institution, we can play a role and we can help strengthen or enhance um, the profession. Yeah. We can help also build collaboration with other institutions. I mean, to think that IOSH is the only institution in the world, no. There are other institutions, and in, in my thinking um, as a safety and health professional is we need to partner, we need to build, we need to find that synergy so we can design the same stepping stones and they learn from where we may have had some challenges and they learn, for example, what kind of solutions that we found for those challenges and vice versa. We can yeah. learn from them, they can learn from us. And at the same time, we can build globally some of these international relationships and we can influence, as I said, we can influence, we can enhance, um, we, can, we can strengthen very much the, the role of these people. And I think, I think our institution, IOSHA, plays a very, very important role in doing this. And IOSHA is, it's a UK, it's a chartered UK organization. It's the biggest organization in the world, but at the same time, um, it is growing out of being UK centric to being global. Yep. And I think that's quite a big base of the IOSH membership was based in Scotland. You've got 10% of the membership bases in Scotland. Indeed. It's very, very interesting, but it's becoming a real global organization. And uh, you can see that really starting to branch out. In a few weeks' time, I'll be doing a webinar for the IOSH Qatar and Oman branch as part of the kind of new normal that's come in that we're now able to attend all of these far-flung places to deliver webinars. Um, that we would never be able to drop the kind of day job to go to unless you had an appointment out there for something to go and be able to go face to face to deliver a presentation but you can now do it online and be able to be out there for that hour, deliver your presentation and work with some interesting people on the other side of the world. It's excellent. Well it was interesting, it was interesting Blair with COVID-19, um, Andrew Sharman, the current president of IOSH mm -hmm. Um, with support of Jimmy Quinn, the president-elect of IOSH, um, we made a proposal um, that we step a little bit outside of the president ambassadorial role and we try to do some promotion about breaking this cycle that I told you about before, the negative synergistic effect of multiple psychosocial issues. Mm -hmm. um, because we know uh, Andrew is a psychologist and I have to a certain extent from my work a background in emergency medicine and psychology, we know that people being isolated at home, um, people being alone at home, people having financial insecurity, this can lead to, again, to use the medical term, comorbidity, you know, of, of people getting stressed, people wondering where their, their next meal may be coming from, mm -hmm. people wondering where their, the, their family might be able to survive financially um, and then that leads to issues such as dependency on alcohol, dependency on drugs, um, domestic violence. Domestic violence was on the increase during COVID, is on the increase during COVID-19. We also had seen that um, many healthcare workers were actually being discriminated against um, during the situation as well. So we built this educational program that lasted approximately an hour 
Um, I believe now over 2,000 members of IOSH have participated in this program, and um, I've taught it myself. The presidential team has basically carried it, and now members of the IOSH Council are carrying it. And we brought it to places like Hong Kong. I've taught it in Hong Kong. I've taught it in Singapore. Um, it's been taught in, in West Africa, which is basically Nigeria and Ghana. Um, it's been taught um, in a variety of different countries in the UK, um, in Switzerland, um, in different areas in Ireland, um, in different areas where IOSH is to try to work with members so that they can identify. Yeah. If someone comes to them, they, they, they say, yeah, I'm having some difficulty. They can understand it and they understand where to go for help. So this is the sort of thing that IOSH can also do in a rather spontaneous way, mm -hmm. given an emergent situation, which can have in the long run a rather devastating impact. Mm -hmm. We spoke about some of the challenges around COVID-19 there as well, David. It uh, probably brings me on to ask you, what's been the biggest challenge across your long and illustrious career in health and safety? What's the biggest thing that you've been faced with? I guess the non-enlightened employer, if you like, um, will sometimes ask the question, why do I have to spend so much money in safety and health? Why do I have to put so much attention on safety and health? Isn't survival of the enterprise first and foremost? Why are you saying safety first? You know, what are you, what are you doing in this direction? And, and is this really going to help me? Um, and one of the things that, that we have found is open communication. Um, demonstrating to people that there is a solid business case with a return on investment um, in occupational safety and health. And we know there is a return on investment. There's a return on investment in occupational safety and health. Um, we can actually change people's thinking. Um, in the ILO, we had a, a program that was called WISE, which was working improvement for small enterprises. Mm -hmm. And we went into enterprises. In fact, I, I spent a great deal of time <clears throat> in Nepal working on this program with really small enterprises, less than, less than 60 people. And we involved the employer, we involved the workers, we involved in a variety of different people and, and basically looked at safety, health, and productivity. Mm -hmm. And you know the idea of, listen, for the equivalent of one pound, we can buy a bucket of paint and a brush. And we can put some lines on the floor in your enterprise. And we can establish in your enterprise a zone to store things, a zone for people to walk, a zone where certain things are going to be happening, certain operations are going to be happening, a zone where we might park some carts or some material. And by doing that, you are going to increase your productivity, you're going to increase your profit, and we're going to reduce the risks that are associated with occupational accidents and occupational diseases. And when we would share these sort of solutions and solutions-oriented approaches, we solve one of the biggest problems in occupational safety and health through communication, through participation, through dialogue, through discussion. And it reduces aggressiveness. It reduces some of the negative aspects that one can find in the workplace. It's amazing how the grassroots kind of approach really works. I had Simon Watson on the show a good few weeks ago now. Simon was telling me a story about being out in uh, Qatar, working on the US Naval Base. And he was coming back in from a bit of leave. Um, I'd been back in Oz and was coming in from a bit of leave. 
and he was in the airport, um, Qatar International Airport, and he was watching a load of labourers um, that had all kind of freshly came in off the plane and were going to be working on a construction site in Qatar the next day. And they were all standing around in a crowd watching what was going on. And he thought, what are they doing? None of them had ever seen an escalator before and they were all trying to work out how to get on it. And he thought, hmm, the real insight for me from that story was, he thought, these guys are going to be potentially on my site tomorrow that will have 3,000 pieces of plant running about on the site and they'll have never seen anything like this. So we need to give them that level of education coming on the site. And the other piece that you told me out of the back of that story was, if you treat people decently and you give them a bit of understanding and a bit of time, it doesn't matter where in the world that you do it, they'll appreciate it and they'll start to work towards what you're asking them to do. So they were real nuggets out of one of the previous podcasts. You know, and first and foremost, we're all human beings. Yeah. I, in the, in the, over the past 20 years, I went, I think, 16 times to Senegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a university in Senegal called Sheikh Antadio, which is the University of Dhaka. And I was actually hired. Initially, I did it as part of the UN, but afterwards I was hired as a private consultant. And I would teach occupational doctors about these different psychosocial issues. And these, these, this was in French. Um, it came from a variety of different, um, the doctors came from maybe 10 or 15 different French-speaking African countries. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea is they do things differently, but they don't do things wrong. They may do things differently than we do. And I think we can learn a lot by some of the simplistic approaches. Let me give you an example of a simple approach. When I was working with the uh, indigenous fishermen divers of Thailand in my PhD research, I trained, as I mentioned, 16 healthcare workers to be able to train the divers and, and, and work with the divers. And one of the things we had a problem with is trying to explain to someone with less than four years of education that carbon monoxide gas was odorless, colorless, and tasteless, but they could be carbon monoxide gas in breathing air, which could be poisonous. Mm-hmm. And I explained this to the healthcare workers. And then one night, um, my wife and I drove into the village and in one of the plate, this is something called a sala, which is a structure with a, with a roof. And with that roof, you know, there, there was two healthcare workers and six boat captains, okay? Because the boat captains need to learn things at the same time as the divers learn things. Mm-hmm. I was listening to them in Thai um, and also in Pasachale, the language of the sea gypsies. And they had two plastic bags that they blew up with air. And they put on one bag the equivalent of the letter A and the second bag the equivalent of the letter B. Okay, mm-hmm. they use different letters, but you know, it's the, basically the equivalent. Yeah. It was basically they blew it up with their mouth and they, they put an elastic band around it, so they have the two bags. And they said to this group of six people, and this was their idea, not my idea, they said, okay, one of them is air and one of them is carbon monoxide. Can you tell us what the difference is? And there were discussions and there were arguments back and forth. And then finally, after five minutes of discussion, the conclusion was, no, we cannot tell the difference. And then these divers learned for the rest of their lives that carbon monoxide gas, which is odorless, colorless, and tasteless, but it can be deadly and we have to know about it and do something about it. 
And this was a discovery that was made by the divers because the healthcare workers that I was able to empower expressed a certain amount of creativity to be able to get the message culturally across to the divers. And this is a lesson that we should take from the divers and from the healthcare workers that we don't parachute ourselves down into a foreign country and say, we're from the, we're from the West and we're great and we know how to do everything and we've got the great universities and we have this and we have that. We have to be able to get ourselves ankle deep into the, into the water and understand what they're doing. With the divers, I had to don their kit and I dive with them for credibility. Um, my wife was very upset when I was doing it because <laughs> If you have conversations about that, eh, David? <laughs> and, and she was right to be worried because their kit was very, very primitive. But at the same time, I needed the credibility with the divers. Yeah. Being able to not put myself at risk, but having Dom, not put on the best equipment that I can and have the best dive computer I can, but to dive with their equipment and be able to show them that, yes, I'm willing to put your equipment on and go underwater with you. So this is the sort of thing that I think, in, as a bottom line, um, you asked what the challenges are. I think the challenges are being able to really get ourselves down to an area where we have a high degree of credibility and we can influence change in a positive way. When I worked in the rail industry, a director phrased it to me like this, a very clever director told me, the guys know when I'm out on track and I'm talking to them that they know I know what it feels like to have wet socks on a Sunday morning at the end of a hard Saturday night shift. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it was like when I was working with the firefighters in the UN. Um, I met the chief of the fire service from China. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we looked at each other. We couldn't, I couldn't speak a word of Chinese at that point in time. Since I've then I've learned a little bit. Um, we looked, we had interpreters. I had an interpreter, he had an interpreter. He looked me in the eye. I looked him in the eye. And he said to me, you were a firefighter and you've seen death. and You've risked your life as a firefighter. And I looked him in the eye and I said, yes, and so have you. Yeah. At that point in time, there was an understanding. There was a bridge. We understood each other. It's the same thing with divers. Sometimes you, you have that sort of mutual understanding of where things are. And even if you're working for a UN organization or if you're working in a, in a huge structure, um, once people understand that, that you are able to respect the situation, I'm not saying that every safety and health professional should put themselves at risk, mm -hmm. but we have to seek to understand the risks that people take and what we can do to effectively eliminate or to mitigate those risks. Yeah. Totally, totally. So that would probably bring me on to another question then, David. Who do you most admire in health and safety? Ah, that's a very good question. I have met so many wonderful professionals in IOSH, in the International Labor Office, in the over 190 member states of the International Labor Office, and also in US OSHA and other places. To choose one person to say this is the person I admire the most, mm -hmm. really couldn't do that. <laughs> okay, so there are some people in my mind um, that have stood out. Yep, um, there are pre there are people that have influenced me 
educationally. It's like the guy who said to me, follow your passion when you do your PhD in occupational safety and health engineering. Yeah. There are people collegially said to me, David, you need to, you need to put yourself forward to be a member of the presidential team of, of the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health. Um, but can I really target someone, one individual who is key? I've got a lot of respect for many, many people mm -hmm. um, in the field, and, and I would not want to diminish that respect for many by, by naming one, if, if you sure. allow me to do that. Of course, of course. It's, uh, it's your podcast, as I said at the outset before we were on camera. The story's all about you, David. Tell us your background, your experience, so that's absolutely fine. Um, so just to sum up a little bit then, David, how do people get in contact with you? If they want to work with you or consult with you on a consultancy basis, how would they, how would they reach out to you? Okay. Um, from a non-IOSH perspective, yep. um, they can go on to my website, mm -hmm. um, which is um, uh, www.gold, my family name, hyphen, K-N-E-C-H-T, connect.com. Mm -hmm. um, and they can find me on my website. Um, you can also find my email address and my telephone number on my website. Yeah. Um, from an IOSH perspective, if you want to reach me, you can actually use my, as long as I'm on the presidential team, which is the next couple of years, um, my IOSH address is david.gold at IOSH.com. Um, you can also call me on my cell phone. It's plus four one seven eight seven four eight zero six zero nine, and I'm happy to respond to to your calls. Um, I'm in Switzerland, so my phone number, my my hours are perhaps a little different than in other parts of the world. Um, yeah, maybe send a text first to organise a time to call rather than calling directly. Um, what I can do, David, is I can put the links for your website and your IOSH email address up in the description as well when we put the podcast out, so I can get that covered there. And then that just leaves me to say thank you very much for being on the Safer Than Your Average podcast. Your story is absolutely fascinating. I'm sure we've just scratched the surface. And uh, if you're interested in coming back on to do a part two at a later point, we might organise that as well. I'd like that. That sounds like fun. And, and, and Larry, I really, I really appreciate the, the work that you're doing. Uh, yeah. The more, the different means of communication that we have. I mean, you know, to, to reach someone who was born after the turn of the century or before the turn of the century or who was born in the 1940s, you need different means of communication to reach out and, and different, um, yeah, different mechanisms. You know, some people will take a phone call. Some people need to look on the web. Some people will go on Instagram or Twitter or a variety of different media. So using this, this vehicle, I think, is really important. People can do it on their own time and they can look at it. And I want to say I very much appreciate the efforts that you're going through to be able to share the world of safety and health with a larger community. Thank you. And that means a lot coming from yourself, David. Thank you very much. Most welcome. And uh, to everybody out there, be safe, be healthy, and take care during these difficult times. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide. <laughs>